Hey everyone, it's Alex. Before we get rolling on Heath, I want to shout a few things out. On our recent Oscar nominations episode, Nick and I joked what if The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins, turned out to be this year's best Oscar film. Because at the time, no one had seen it, but it had all these damn Oscar nominations. And we will not be diving into that movie on this pod, but I was recently a guest on one of my favorite podcasts, the Matinee Cast, to talk about this movie, which is really, really damn good, by the way, great film. The Matinee Cast is hosted by my friend Ryan McNeil. Ryan and I have known each other for about 10 years through movie blogging, so it was really cool to catch up with him and talk about this surprisingly good movie. Again, that's the Matinee Cast, hosted by Ryan McNeil. It's episode 258, The Father. Please go check it out. Heath. We're talking about Heath in this upcoming episode, so we're talking about spoilers, The Patriot, Brokeback Mountain. If you haven't seen these but want to, we're going to be talking about all of them. Finally, and I mean this with respect to all of our Twitter fans, thank you so much for engaging with our fun Best Picture series that Nick is running on there now. We're having a blast connecting with you all, and John Klein III... My guy, I see you, I thank you, Nick thanks you for checking out our work and being really supportive and really cool. So that's it, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined as always by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, cowboy? Well, I'm excited to be here. Oh, nice. nice. I tried. I tried. Uh, it's it's a tough one. I mean, Heath, how we love you. You can apply really most any acting superlative to Heath Ledger and it'll likely fit. But I think the best way I can sum up my Heath thoughts is by saying that the man simply had it. He just had that thing. He had no formal acting training. No years of grueling practice on the stage. Instead, the guy had a dream. He had charm. He had talent. He had that thing. And of course, I don't mean to suggest that his career just came easily. Like he obviously worked really hard for it. But there are a few people in the world, just generally in the world, who professionally are doing right now exactly what they're meant to be doing. And we don't really know about a lot of them because they're not in the public eye so much as an actor. But Heath was one of those people. He was natural, raw talent. And going through his filmography in order for this episode has been, you know, we were talking before we fired the mics up here. It's been a little bittersweet because we're watching this amazing career, but one that was incredibly short-lived. Man. I mean, you said it so well, the natural talent. He really was a star. He shined. Mm-hmm. He's a show stealer, and he and it's all eyes on him. The light shines so bright, and what's mirrored back is something that you just can't take your eyes off of. The charm. He's so charming. His persuasiveness, his showmanship. And, and also one thing I really loved about him is there was this weakness in a lot of performances. That he could also match with strength, but I love seeing weak. We'll get into all of this stuff, but these are all just things that I just couldn't help but notice that are a part of who he was as an artist and finding out more about him, realizing he really was an artist. And that's how he saw the world. Gone much too soon, much too soon. But 
what a uh, what a legacy he's left behind that we're going to get into. Absolutely, because we are here to talk about the work and to not get into any sort of Hollywood gossip or any nonsense like that. Born a true artist, like with video camera in hand, trying to figure out ways to shoot different stuff, just not just an actor. He clearly had a lot to say in the artistic realm. And it's, you know, of course, a shame that that got cut off because I think we were going to see in our research, we found out that he had certainly next stages to his career that he had envisioned. But we're here to talk about the work, as always. And by way of very quick introduction, Heath Ledger was born in Perth, Australia in 1979. Perth, the song by Bonnie Vare was written about him. I didn't realize yeah. that. I really like that. Born in Perth in 1979, and within 20 years, he's one of the most sought-after young talents in Hollywood. And his career remains that way for about eight years before his, of course, tragic and untimely death in January 2008. With all those years I just breezed over, we have some truly all-time performances that we're going to get into we're going to go through an order. We did this for Daniel Day-Lewis, Amy Adams, John Cassavetes, and that's how we're doing it. It's kind of a career retrospective. First up, BlackRock, 1997. This is his first performance in a feature film. Did you have a chance to watch this one? I did. I did. <laughs> it was a bit surprising. Like I had n absolutely no idea what this was. There's a kind of funky YouTube link that's free. Just, you know, just search for it, BlackRock, Heath Ledger. If you want to dive into it, but real quick, it's this little Australian indie thriller that has a little edge that I did not expect. Of course, it's far from perfect, but it's about a group of surfer kids in the suburbs and at a party one night, three of them, including Ledger's character, Toby, sexually assault a girl on a beach and her dead body is soon discovered there. So it has this bite that I really did not anticipate and yeah, this isn't a polished movie, but that's fine. For our purposes, Heath is really going for it here. And I could not take my eye off him and to hear like that very familiar voice of him kind of cracking because he's so young and he doesn't have a lot of screen time, but he still has a presence. I'm glad you had a chance to check it out. It, it, you know, it's cool. It's always cool to go back to the source and see where it all started. And what's cool is that it just reminds me so much of how any actor starts. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always some project that you just cut your teeth on where you don't have a lot of lines. You don't. It's really hard. Those are actually the hardest things to actually make work because you're not involved enough into what quote unquote matters with the project to ask questions, to indulge to explore you kind of just have to do what's asked of you and do it really fast so you don't waste anyone's time so that being said with what Heath does in this it feels very much like that type of actor performance where it's like I'm gonna get in this little fight scene and cause a ruckus yeah which is I think is what starts what we'll probably keep talking about is how he makes everything work moving along we have another Australian film called Two Hands. This comes out in 1999. This is a bit more polished and fun than Black Rock. I actually really like this one. And so did it's I. one of those fun, yeah, I, I can't wait to talk about it. It's one of those fun, harmless crime comedies of the late 90s, like a mini Bonnie and Clyde vibe, like a lifeless ordinary type thing about two young lovers on the rung. 
Keith plays Jimmy. He's a well-intentioned kid who accidentally and very stupidly loses 10 grand of a mob boss's money. And it becomes really hilarious in the desperation he goes through to try to get this money back and pay it back. Rose Byrne, a really young Rose Byrne, it was great to see her, shows up as Heath's love interest. It was directed by Gregor Jordan. I I don't know if I mentioned that, but that's important to mention for reasons we'll get into. But what you're saying and what we're getting into as we go through an order, when I was watching this movie, I watched it for the first time for this episode, it was a really kind of star-making performance that I bet a lot of studio heads or people in in the American studio system were like, hmm, that kid could be something. We got to get him over here. And that's essentially what happens. It's yeah, it's magnetic. He, he's uh, his star power shines all through this thing. But this movie is so much fun. I really, really enjoyed it. I think it actually might be one of my favorite movies of his legacy. Nice. Yeah, it was just um, it was just very, very fun. It was yeah, all those references you made, I think, nail it right on the head. It felt like a 1999 movie. It's a perfect young man role, Romeo. But living on the fast lane. Yeah. That that type for like a young male actor, this is exactly it because he's he plays this guy exactly who he is. He's young. He's you can see he's got this potential. He knows it. He's good looking. He's charming. But he's also dumb because yeah. he's <laughs> a young, horny fucking guy. And real quick, like, just because you use yeah. that word, I love when such intelligent actors play idiots. Brad Pitt yeah. is so good at doing this too. Like you're right. I I I for I, I should have mentioned that. Like that's such a good way to describe it. He's a well-intentioned goof. He's just yeah. kind of dumb. So sorry, keep it, going. Yeah. And I don't want to ruin it, but like you mentioned in the synopsis of how he loses 10 grand, he loses 10 grand in the <laughs> most sensible and logical way that a character that he's playing would lose it. And it's perfect. Yep. I loved it so much. And um, and I, I just really got that sense of this is a guy who's perfect at playing the part he's playing at the age he's at and the look he has and the type of charisma that he has is um, exactly why you can see how he comes to America and does what he does. Our timeline might be a little off here because I believe Two Hands was released actually after the next movie I'm going to talk about. But at any rate, in March of 1999, Heath Ledger enters the American film landscape in a major way, and he frankly never leaves it. He stays as a Hollywood A-lister for the rest of his career, and this announcement comes in the form of Patrick Verona as the smoldering bad boy in 10 Things I Hate About You. Just like real quick, as I like to say about this movie, this is yet another 90s rom-com that no studio exec would even read today, let alone make. Like there's – I. so here's what I wanted to ask you and I kind of sent you a prep question leading up to this. Has there been a better male performance in a rom-com since then? Because we're talking about charm and we're talking about charisma. So I don't know who stands up to this. I wrote down a few – I mean, Topher Grace and win a date with Tad Hamilton. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, seriously. <laughs> has there been a more charming thing that a guy has done in a rom-com since Can't Take My Eyes Off You in this movie? I don't think so. I couldn't imagine anyone else playing it. Mm-mm. Like, there's certain roles that come through an actor's career that are just, like, there's no one else that could have done that better than you. 
And it's just true. A lot of actors, you can say that for a lot of roles where it's like, oh, this person, I could see them doing that. But to your point about that genre of the romantic comedy high school movie, the thing that he does, does simultaneously, he captures the girls with, you know, his his charm, his looks, the bad boy. But he's also cool. So he also mm-hmm. gets the guys. So yep. all the dudes watching it like him too. So across the board, he's he's knocking it out of the park. So everyone wants to see what this guy does and everyone wants to see what he's going to do next in the movie because, again, show stealer. Yeah. The dude lights up every scene he's in and his chemistry with Julia Stiles is great. They really work well together. He's just great and he's a leading man. And that's a really important factor in the high school rom-com because I'm trying to think of other ones at the top of my head. The main lead always has his core group of dudes that like he's Mm -hmm. cool with. But Patrick Verona, like the first person he meets is the quote unquote nerds just because that's like how it goes. And he befriends him immediately because he's just down for like hanging out and into cool people. And yeah, it's it's cool to be wanted to be liked by the guys and wanted by the women and not doing it in sort of this arrogant way. And the chemistry he has, I I don't think they're it's probably not surprising that a lot of the people he co-starred with, I think he got really, really good performances out of them. And I think that's true here of Julia Stiles because they it feels like he just really cares about her. Uh, he had such a way of luring them in. But 10 things I hate about you. What an announcement. Um, that is currently available on Disney Plus right now. I want to try to call these movies out where they're available to stream as we go. That's the first one. Disney Plus. And for anyone who may not know, it's an adaptation from a Shakespeare play of The Taming of the Shrew. Yes, it is. It's excellently done. Like, like it follows the story pretty much, you know, beat for beat without drawing any attention that we're taking this from Shakespeare, even though there are little uh, little jabs in there of Shakespearean stuff. And it has a supporting performance from Alyssa Olenek, who is Alex Mack. Alex Mack. I loved her. The, I loved her. the secret. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> Moving on here, folks. <laughs> Next up, I'm going to let you lead the discussion primarily about this one. But Hollywood being Hollywood, after 10 Things I Hate About You, everyone tried to put Heath in a box by offering him seemingly every high school heartthrob role. And he openly rejects it and goes a different way. Now, as an Australian, I would imagine that any young man would idolize Mel Gibson and it would be your dream to be in an American huge movie with uh, Australia's biggest movie star who's come from there. And that's why it must have been such a huge thrill for Heath to play Mel's son in The Patriot. And again, this is somewhat of a conventional war film, one that I actually like, but Heath is absolutely going for it in this movie. Like he just, he's really showing up in a way performances, supporting actors kind of don't in these types of movies. So I know you're a fan of this one. Tell us about The Patriot. I love this movie. This was this was one of my very first movies I ever bought on DVD. Yeah. So this was around the time, like, because the movie came out in 2000 and DVDs were just kind of hitting. Yeah. And I remember I got the special edition. Fucking A. <laughs> but no, you're, you're right. I mean, imagine working with the guy, because up until that point, Mel Gibson was Australia's favorite son. Like, no one had come out of that country and hit 
the movies in America and became this star like Mel. Mm -hmm. And Mel is fucking awesome in this movie. One of my favorite scenes of all time is when he fucking goes ape shit at in in uh Hacking him kills up. all the Oof. guys. Yeah, it's great. Oh my god. That yeah, that's like his first big scene that, that yeah. awakens the beast. Well, and my point that I want to make about that is like in the same way like that is like Mel being the ultimate father like in that situation of being like a badass fucking dad. Mhm. On the other side, you've got Heath who is playing a son. There is something very important, and you talk about the short legacy that he has as a career. He's playing a bad boy. He's playing a young, you know, Romeo type of characters. But playing a son is a is a whole entire art into itself as to who are you in my relationship to your father, who are you in relationship to your brothers, younger, older. And Heath is right there in this character, and he's very eager. He's very dutiful to sign up for the war. He wants to do something to um, with his allegiance to his country. He's very proud of it, and his dad doesn't want him to. It's kind of crossing that man-boy line mm-hmm. and watching him do it, but he doesn't. That's the thing I love about this movie with Heath's performance is that he doesn't. He fucking dies. Spoiler. <laughs> well, but I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, come on. It's 21 years later, folks. Yeah. And I'm bringing the spoiler up because... No joke. This is my favorite death scene. It's a hell of a damn scene. Slow. Just the way it's staged. Like, this is the guy who directed Independence Day. Like, this, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I love it. The the slow-mo of the knife kind of coming up into frame. And let's give a shout-out to Jason Isaacs, who's on fire yeah. in this movie as well. But, yeah, keep going. It's a great, I mean, as far as death scenes go, it's a great one. It's just everything that happens in his eyes, mm-hmm. that's where it's at. And it's, yeah, the slow motion, absolutely, the cinematic quality helps. And it is heartbreaking and mesmerizing to watch him have his last moments with just his eyes. The choice in his head there, because he's seeing Jason Isaacs back, and he's kind of looking like, okay, this is the dude that's responsible for killing my brother. So to me, he's getting ready to commit probably go a little overboard like dad did yeah. and seeing him make that choice with his eyes and then it very quickly does not turn out that way is it's a, it's a really well staged moment and perfectly acted yeah the next year Heath has his first starring role in an American production as William Thatcher in a Knight's Tale fun movie easy movie watching it again because we're watching all of Heath's films in order it's shocking how easily he was able to assume the position of leading man because he carries this entire film. I mean, he's not responsible for all the comedic jokes, but he does have a lot of comedic timing to land. He has the romantic heartache. He has the heroic journey, that joy. He's got to fight against the villain. Most all of this is on his shoulders. And frankly, if it were a different actor, this movie would not work as well. This movie was a hit at the time. It cost $65 million. It made $117 Critics liked it. It was solid. It's kind of just an easy one to see and then forget about. I don't know how much it frankly holds up on rewatches. If it does hold up, it's because of him. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about, uh, you know, this was this was the formula of how it used to work. If you were a star on the rise, young, good looking, everyone's kind of wondering what you're going to do next. They're going to put you in a vehicle where you get to do all of these things. You're going to be a hero. You're going to have comedy. You're going to have romance. You're going to have all of this. 
and it's going to be all on you. And if it does well, woof, then uh, we know we got something here. Right. This formula is not how it works anymore. So hearing you kind of phrase it the way you just did just made me think of that was like, this has to be one of the last few people that this happened to where it's like, okay, we you're on the rise. We're going to shoulder this ridiculous movie. Yeah. I mean, it is. <laughs> and I mean that in a good way. But everyone fucking loved it at the time. It was a huge hit. I didn't. I don't think I knew a single person who didn't see it. Like everyone was humming, we will rock you. Like the next Monday at school because people had seen it in theaters, but a ridiculous movie. I probably intentionally ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. Like it, they, they talk about it where it's like we know what we're doing here. This is all mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, uh, wink, wink, you know, but let's have fun with this story. And, you know, his face was on all the posters. It was just his face. Just you know, it was his like face. A red background. And that's it. Yeah. Night's Tale. Which is really cool because his movie before was just Mel's face on the poster. Just The Patriot. Mm-hmm. Here it is. This really just doesn't happen anymore. We don't see no. a young actor with this much raw talent kind of rise this quickly. And people can rise very quickly now, but they may not excel to, well, I'll just go right into it, to something like Monster's Ball, which comes out the same year as A Knight's Tale. It's directed by Mark Forrester. And this was the one for me. This I thought he was charming in 10 things. I thought he was exciting in The Patriot, fun in A Knight's Tale. But Sonny Grakowski in Monster's Ball was the role where I knew Heath Ledger was going to be an all-timer, a young actor who is very seemingly avoiding most every major Hollywood role that is coming his way. In researching him, this was a theme. He did not want to be the heartthrob. He did not want to be huge in the limelight. And I think... One of the ways to avoid that is you don't take on the teen roles or you don't take on the leading man rom-coms. You take on a supporting role in a $4 million movie playing the son of a racist prison guard. And the first time we see Heath in this movie, it's a really shocking scene if you're like, oh, that's the kid from 10 Things I Hate About You. And then like 30 seconds later, you're going, whoa, we're into something really different here. But I absolutely love him in this movie. The first time I saw it. The thing I could not get out of my head was Heath. I did appreciate in my research how Billy Bob Thornton said he plays Heath Ledger's dad in this. He said that Heath asked him to really hit him. And there's a lot of physicality in their work here, a lot of nastiness and bitterness. And Billy Bob treats him like shit in this movie. And Heath just welcomed it. And I really appreciated that because Sonny is just a grown boy who wants to be loved traditionally sons turn into their fathers and then this movie is different because it's about a father trying to find kind of some of the empathy that his son had so i always really really liked this movie not necessarily for the reasons everyone talked about sure but there was an extra component to where i knew this kid was going to be a star i just i mean i really thought he was but i did too and uh yeah i think you said it so well um, you know, because and you know, Heath is not in it for very much. Um, and what he does with such a short amount of screen time is truly impressive. You know, in that opening scene that he has with the prostitute, the thing that clued me into this guy was that, you know, when he I forget the line he says, but he's essentially when they're done, he kind of is he's longing for some type of connection like like he says, stay a while or, you know, like, or let's go do this. Yeah. He's like, do you he, want to like hang out sometime or yeah, yeah, something like that? And it's so innocent. 
and you're like, oh, this guy is kind of sad. Like he's, And then you see how he is with his dad. There's this line Peter Boyle says at one point in the movie where he just says he's weak. Mm-hmm. And Heath is weak in this movie. He is a weak, incapable son who can't do anything right. I love these type of characters. I think they're yeah. so interesting. I love people that can't do it. The longing that you see in him without saying a single word is so, so compelling and heartbreaking to watch. And I love that thing you said about Billy Bob saying, um, you know, when Heath's like, I want you to hit me. Yeah. During the walk, that final walk. I mean, just mm. go back and rewind it and watch his face knowing what's coming. Yeah. If you haven't seen it in a while and you just remember it as like that movie with that scene, it's on Hulu now. I don't know. Maybe go back and kind of pay attention to Heath's work in it. I think think there's a lot going on there that he's doing that I think is really great. Okay, Bubba. So moving on, we have we have five movies to work through here pretty quickly uh, because this is this is just how it be sometimes. Not <laughs> not every role you pick is going to be in a great movie. And it just happens that way. The quality of a final movie should never rest solely on a single actor. And these movies we're going to talk about don't. What is important, where I'm sensing a trend here, is that no matter the quality of the film, Heath always shows up. First up in this run, we have The Four Feathers, which is frankly an unnecessary remake of the classic novel from 1902. This had been remade a number of times, but... It seemed like a good vehicle for Heath to work with his best friend, Wes Bentley. So off they go. And very quickly, the movie is about a young officer played by Heath who refuses to enter a war. And when his friends are sent anyway, he disguises himself as an Arab man to go help save them. So obviously this movie's not getting made today in this form for a few reasons. And the movie's a little over two hours. It feels much much longer it did not make a ton of money critics didn't like it and you know all fair fine but holy shit almost maybe even more so than any film we're going to talk about today the first time i saw this movie in 2002 i hadn't seen it since since then i was re-watching it for this episode and going man i'm getting some brando and monty clift vibes here because those guys were not always in the best movies but they always showed up And Heath is just really going for it. Like toward the end of this movie, he looks like he's acting like this is going to be the last time he's ever given the chance to act. So I can't really fully endorse or recommend this movie because it is really long, but he just shows up for it in a way that I found incredibly impressive. Yeah, he is doing everything he can without forcing Because I think that's an important thing here. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you see actors force trying to make things work and it does not translate well to an audience's digestion of the scene. So when you're talking about a movie that, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, doesn't really work, you can see Heath trying to make it work without forcing And he is really making the most and trying to create everything he can in his scenes. And they are. His scenes are emotionally compelling. I feel like in all these movies that we're kind of getting into right now, there's there's good movies in here somewhere. Mm -hmm. They may not fully execute into that. But, man, when you see an actor trying to make the most out of what they're given... And actually making it work. 
you know, because there's so much that's uncontrollable. Like you isn't if you're just the actor, you only really have control over your your scene with your scene partner and how you want to do that. And um, it is worth watching for that because there is some some of his best acting moments. I actually thought were in this movie. Yeah, it was the young lions with Clift and Brando actually it came to mind as a movie. They're both pretty good at Clift in particular, not the best movie, but they just show up in such a profound way. Four Feathers is on HBO Max right now if you want to check out Heath's work in it. But 2003 is kind of a rough year for Heath. First up, we have Ned Kelly. This is another starring role for Heath, and it should have worked on paper. You have Orlando Bloom, Naomi Watts, Jeffrey Rusher co-stars. John Michael McDonough wrote the script. And it just kind of falls flat. There's nothing much to it. He does what he can with it. It's just kind of a sleepy movie. The biggest thing I want to bring up here is that this film was directed by Gregor Jordan. And I could not find this in my research, so I don't know if this is true. But that's the director of Two Hands. And I don't know. It just kind of felt like Ned Kelly was probably a very big film for Gregor Jordan to direct. Like a big, you know, bigger budget. This is a big deal. And then now... He gave this kid a shot for his indie film in 99. The kid went off in four years and became a star. And now the kid, I, I just envision him kind of helping his buddy Gregor out and going, yeah, sure, I'll be in the movie, even though the movie doesn't fully work. That's how I've always viewed it. So I think one of the things that comes up for me with this is listening to people like Orlando Bloom and Naomi Watts talk about mm-hmm. this movie. Because um, for Naomi Watts in particular, it attracted her to work on this movie because of Heath. And I think at this point in his career, he had started putting forth work that other people were noticing in terms of their peers. I know for me, it's very, very important for um, actors that I work with to like working with me, to enjoy working with me, to feel like they do their best work alongside me. And I think that at this point, people were starting to feel like that about him and wanting to work on projects just because he was a part of it. And you hear these people talk about him so beautifully as like in terms of feeling so free to work with him on camera and also the personality he had behind the camera. You know, that bright star quality was with him wherever uh, he was and whoever he was with. And that's, I think, a testament to the kind of person he was. You know, the old maxim that who a person is, they're going to reveal to you in times of distress, not in times of like great joy. So you can, it's not hard to find stories about actors or directors or whomever on the set of a movie that doesn't really turn out that well, being whatever cranky or uh, there are any number of examples you can throw out there. You're not going to find anyone to say a bad word about him. Just like he's showing up, he's there, he's giving it his all. And next up in this vein is The Order, which is another kind of helping out an old friend role from 2003. This is written and directed by the same guy who did A Knight's Tale, Brian Helgeland. And Brian Helgeland won an Oscar for co-writing LA Confidential. He wrote Mystic River, the first movie he directed, Payback with Mel Gibson. It's kind of fun. Heath is a great actor, of course. So there's talent behind the order, but this movie just doesn't succeed on any level. And we don't really need to belabor that point. It's a movie about a priest played by Heath trying to fight off evil demons. There are sin eaters or something. 
it's bad. It seems like from what I could gather, everyone involved knows it's bad. So you just kind of go, okay, that happened. Moving on. Yeah. 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 Now we're going <laughs> to jump to a packed year, 2005. And wow. this next one is really fun to talk about because this movie doesn't really work. And that's Lords of Dogtown, 2005, directed by Catherine Hardwick. A documentary about the same subjects, Dogtown and the Z-Boys, was made a few years earlier and it works a lot better. But as Z-Boys skateboard team founder Skip Ingbloom, Heath is fucking incredible in this movie. Like, outstanding. And sometimes, honestly, it can be disparaging to say that actor is acting in an entirely different movie. But here, that is intended as a high compliment. Because whatever the hell he's doing so far exceeds what anyone else in the film is doing. And I'm not just talking about the actors. I'm talking about the quality of the story, the cinematography, the way it's cut, the overall direction. It's just, it's so interesting to dive into reviews that were written in 2005 about this movie because it wasn't really that well received. The general tone is, yeah, a cool movie. The documentary is better, but holy shit, Heath Ledger, like <laughs> that really, I mean, if the movie would have been about him and just focused on him, could have really had something special, but yeah, it, I mean, he's just on another level in this. A whole other level, and it's it's amazing. Like, I highly recommend watching this movie mm -hmm. because it, unlike some of the other ones we were just talking about, where you know there there is some value in them. I mean, you will get you will walk away from this with a performance that you'll remember, and this is a very pivotal point in his career. Because at this point, he talks about how he became obsessed with immersion and transformation into his characters. I think it was a big part of why Four Feathers attracted him, Ned Kelly, you know, and especially with this where, okay, we're moving on from that charismatic leading man thing to character. Like, that's what he did here. You know, little things like the fake teeth. Um, but when you watch him, the way he moves, the mm -hmm. voice, this is a guy that no longer, you are not watching, you know, a, a Heath Ledger doing, playing someone else. You're watching a guy, you know, that's what I felt about this movie is like, if I walked into a surf shop in LA, this would be the guy behind the cash register. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's be <laughs> so believable. And I feel like I've known these types of guys. And I think that's what I love about acting so much is when you can watch a performance and you'd be like, I know that guy. That guy, like, he was a guy I worked with. Mm -hmm. He was a guy, like, I grew up with. Like, I remember, I know these types of people because that's what we're doing. We're expressing humanity. And um, there is no more heartbreaking scene to me than at the end of this movie oh. and watching that reality now happen is always very, very captivating. So I, I found it beautiful and heartbreaking in his performance because it's so sad that this is just this little guy just wants what he wants and this happens and it's gone, man. They wanted it gone. The movie doesn't necessarily land as a whole, but his character arc absolutely does. There's like, there's a cool kind of short film about his character tucked in there somewhere. And the way I always viewed Heath is that he was a character actor in a leading man's body. And I think when he was his best is when he went into these character roles where maybe you're disguising yourself, but you're not just relying on looks or anything. You're kind of deviating 
from the norm in a way. Brad Pitt, as he's gotten older, has I think he's that's what he's always wanted to be, and that's what he's doing now. We're going to see a lot of success if he stays in that realm. You have heard me talk about this. I don't know if I've ever talked about it on the pod. One of the first conversations you and I ever had is I said, wait until Cruz, Tom Cruz, becomes an old man and starts playing old man roles. That will happen. I know he knows like he's not going to be 80 doing Mission Impossibles. But when that dude is ready to settle into character roles, he's going to have like three supporting actor Oscars. It's just and what I mean by like a character role like Magnolia is a character performance. He's not really disguising himself. That's one side of the coin. Tropic Thunder is a very completely polar opposite side of the same coin. And when Cruz starts to do that, like we're going to we're going to see some crazy, really cool, dramatic, weird shit. I, I just hope he does. But anyway, I bring all this up because Heath's star power never went away and he could be in bad movies, but he was sought after and he could have kind of always had the pick of whatever he wanted. That makes me appreciate him even more because instead of taking high paying throwaway movies and let's say like a bad action movie, he decides that he wants to work with an auteur he's always respected, Terry Gilliam, and they were really kindred spirits and more than just collaborators. They became really fast friends. And the first movie they make together is The Brothers Grimm. It co-stars Matt Damon. And from what I can tell, the blame seems to be on Harvey Weinstein here about why this movie didn't work out. I, I, I don't know. I remember seeing this in theaters and being like, what in the ever loving hell is going on? I have no idea what's happening. But, you know, Terry Gilliam, I say this about every single one of his movies. I do not like all of them, but I am so glad that man exists. I'm so glad he makes films the way that he does. And, you know, it's little, I don't know how productive it is to play the what if game, but these two were going to make a lot of cool shit together. They really were. And, you know, that kind of is where my, when I think of Brothers Grimm, that's what I think about, that they probably had a great friendship and it would have been great to see what else came of it. That's all. My biggest takeaway from Brothers Grimm was the relationship between Matt Damon and Heath. Yeah. Uh, I really felt that they were brothers. They really did have that older brother, younger brother conflict, but they cared about each other like because they were in this career together. They both needed each other in certain ways to be a whole unit and they each served their own purpose in that, but also dealt with the conflicts of what that was for each other. And I, I just really felt the whole entire time that I didn't once question that these guys weren't brothers. And I think that's an important thing when you're you can see a lot of movies and you're like, oh, he's just playing his brother. Mm -hmm. But these guys had that. It was it was that specific. And I've heard Matt Damon say that. uh he loved working with Heath, and this was one of his favorite projects to be a part of because they got to have so much fun together, and that's what it's all about. And I think one of the coolest things about Heath is that he, an actor is supposed to be having fun. When, he, when an actor's having fun, that's when you really feel that character's life. Yeah, and if you want to check this one out, it's on HBO Max right now. I, I mean, it's worth it for that reason alone, because he does look like he's having fun. Next up, 2005, it's a tall order to play one of the most legendary figures in history. 
and any faults of the movie Casanova, directed by Lasse Holstrom, are not Heath's. It's just another kind of soft, sloppy, unnecessary movie. It's nice to say it's nice to see Heath playing off Sienna Miller, who I who I've always really liked, and Jeremy Irons, Oliver Platt. But I mean, yeah, but at the same time, I this is I think his most comedic performance. You think so? So. I think so. Like seeing some of the ways that he uh, enters into these situations and deals with them, he's a little fuckboy, and he and he's able to execute some of the what we've seen from him before in terms of that the charm, the persuasiveness, the sexiness, the bravado. Like all of that is playing for him because you know when you're talking about playing Casanova. Come on, how do you not roll your eyes immediately? Because Casanova... Right, is just, exactly. I think the lore of Casanova is probably bigger than what actually Casanova really was. So trying to put that to film, I don't think worked from Hellstrom's point of view. But if you're telling me that a Casanova movie is going to be made, and at that time Heath Ledger is going to be the guy being cast, you will 100% be like, that's believable. Yeah. I could see that. In the same way, which is a much better movie, Don Juan DeMarco Mm -hmm. with Johnny Depp and Marlon Brando from 1995, similar in types of how these types of guys are going to portray these larger-than-life lovers. And watching Heath take on this challenge, again, I think he made it work. Um, But that's what he does. He makes shit work. Yeah, he does. So we're three movies deep into 2005, and now we arrive at, this is the one, the boss of it all, the game changer. Here we are at Ennis Del Mar, Brokeback Mountain. Um, I've, I mean, I mentioned this on a podcast recently as one of my, what are you watchings? Because I rewatched Brokeback, and this is, it's an all-timer. I truly think this performance rivals damn near anything Brando or Clift or Dean did, and I'm not joking. Um, apparently... Ang Lee was so captivated by Heath's work in Monster's Ball that he sought him out for Ennis here. So again, we've said this before on the podcast, there's no small roles. You never know what doors one job is going to open for you. Jake Gyllenhaal was recently on Mark Maron's podcast, and he shared the coolest bit of trivia about Heath playing Ennis Del Mar that I kind of wanted to use as a starting off point for our conversation. And that was Heath made the conscious decision to have Ennis be sensitive to light and sound. Now, I never knew that, but that's such a fascinating choice that informs every single thing Ennis does. So, yeah, I kind of wanted just to start off from there. And I want to geek out about that a little bit because I kind of want to explain why that's such a cool thing. You know, when you're watching a movie, you're watching Brokeback Mountain, you're never going to be like, ah, that guy's sensitive to light and sound. Oh, cool. That's not for the audience. That is a tiny little specific detail to give yourself as the actor playing this role that will always trigger you to remind you of who you are in your physicality and where you're at in your scene. Let's just say for an example... You're in the middle of the scene and you um, you lose something like you, you kind of fall out a little bit. Right. All you have to do is look at a source of light 
And because you've given yourself and you've practiced and you've played with it, it's become ingrained into your body, you look at that light, it's going to affect you. You immediately have a physical and emotional reaction to that, puts you right back into the emotional life of Ennis Delmar, and it does nothing but helps further everything that he's doing with that character. And it's adding that little extra touch as to why when you watch Ennis Delmar, you get to know so you get to know Ennis, not Heath. Again, it just that one sentence of knowledge that he was sensitive to that stuff, it really opens up the film in a whole new way because that's a movie that I've always been drawn to the sound of as it relates to Ennis. Like when he is punching that wall after they separate from being on Brokeback together for the first time. And he's like punching it. It's so loud in the way you know, he yells at the guy, what the fuck are you looking at? Like there's a timber to his voice. It almost like yeah. if you were watching this on like a with five speakers, it would like rattle your subwoofer almost. He does the same thing when it's, uh, you know, you get the fuck off of me when uh, when they're hugging at the end. And to do that and to always be able to rely on that. We're not talking like he's a cockroach. Like if a light turns on, he scurries into a corner. Yeah. But you can tell that he is a guy who's so internaled and crumbled like in a box. This is not a showy wavy performance and god that just informs so much about him and i love that you brought up that voice part because obviously when you watch this movie and what Heath has done at you know when he hit a certain point in his career he does it in lords of dogtown does i think in almost every movie's post that is the voice Mm -hmm. creating the voice and he finds that you know once he finds the voice he can find the breath and ennis has got to be probably one of the most specific voices he's created And, you know, when you watch the movie, it's very clenched. Everything in him is completely clenched. Any expression is like fighting through his mouth to come out. But I always felt when I was watching when those scenes where he barks out, like when he's punching the wall, he even does it in the fireworks scene when he punches the uh, fucking biker dudes. Right. And when they're washing the dishes. Yeah. At Thanksgiving. So it's very cool to watch when he does that because that's when... The emotion has gotten so high that he can't control it. So you're talking about this guy who's just clenched up all the time and he, and he can't, like everything he says, smiles are painful. But when he can't do that anymore, it's this gutter roll. He can't, he, he has to leave the room when he does that with Michelle Williams. Yeah. He leaves the fucking house and then he goes to a bar and picks a fight with a guy on the street. <laughs> It's just so captivating to watch because, and it's only in moments where he is really in touch with fear. Mm -hmm. You know, there's very little exposition written about his character, except what he talks about his dad. And, you know, one of the things that I think has got to be some type of emotional anchor is the beating and killing of the gay man that his father showed him as a kid. Mm -hmm. How does that not make you terrified to live your life when he says he could have he could have done the job himself yeah Yeah. and that's what keeps him from staying with jake is this fear Mm -hmm. you know usually they get a hold of that you know someone finds out that's it for us so when michelle williams's character's basically saying she knows that's touching on his biggest fear of being found out it's a very, very smart movie. That's the last time we see Michelle Williams because she's found him out. So why he, she's not in the store anymore. Like she's gone. You know, the daughters are still there. But this is Heath Ledger. Brokeback Mountain is as good as acting gets for me. 
I mean, I remember seeing this movie with my dad and him holding this performance in such high regard and he still does to this day. Like that's – it's like an old classic Hollywood performance but with new contemporary kind of flourishes mixed in very contained like you said it always holds a special place in my heart and now especially it's you know it's little joy little sadness and so specific and so real that it's just it's it's one of the yeah it's an all-time performance i'm just getting so excited talking about it (laughs) i know i i want to well i haven't watched it again since this light and sound note uh two more things Something else that I that I think is at least interesting to speculate about or to put in your brain while watching it is Jake Gyllenhaal, Jack Twist, could very well be his first sexual experience in his life because they're young. I think they're 19 or, or his parents died when he was 19. They're young. And he's he says, you know, I'm going back and marrying Alma, Michelle Williams, when we're off this mountain. But I don't know. Maybe they were traditional and didn't have sex until they were married. But then he obviously Michelle Williams is a partner for a while. They have kids, and then later Linda Cardellini. But the point I'm trying to make is that this was not a sexually promiscuous person. Jack Twist very clearly is. They make that clear. But you have to put all of that into context of this guy's life. This is not yeah. a guy like going out chasing the thrills. And when I thought about it, watching that you know infamous scene of him and Jake in the tent, I was like, this could be the first time. I mean, has he ever kissed anyone before? I, I I don't know how many how many women has Ennis Del Mar talked to in his life? Like he doesn't even speak. So like how yeah. I mean, how often? I mean, he was raised by his siblings, so it just, it it puts a whole other spin on it that is you know really really interesting to think about and mull over. And just to be clear, you know, when we're talking like this, we are not saying that this is what this performance is. Correct. This is us talking about how this performance affected us and i think what you know the point that you're making is it's so specific that the imagination is open now for you mm-hmm. to take so many things into consideration for how you view it and so i just want to make that clear because i think that's the best part about this is what does it mean to you what are some things about ennis that hit you like you just said that to me i never thought about that Mm-hmm. Like, holy shit, yeah, that might have been his first sexual experience. And that just blew my mind. So, you know, we're only saying these things in the ways of revealing how we have felt about these and maybe encouraging you to when you watch his performances like this, what do they mean to you? It, this It's it's an all-timer one. It really is. It really resonates. It's still speaking to me. I'm still discovering new things about it. Of yeah. course, I'm putting my own. So what we do to art, we put our own perspective and history into what we're watching. But yeah, very cool. So now I have to do a really, really tough question that isn't actually that much fun. Best Actor Oscar, 2005. Philip Seymour Hoffman wins every award there is feasible for Capote. Uh, frankly, Heath Ledger didn't have a shot. No one did. Um, Terrence Howard was nominated for Hustle and Flow, a performance I really like. David Strathairn for Good Night and Good Luck. I'm doing it off memory. I don't. Damn yeah, it. look at you. Look at you go. Clooney won supporting actor for uh, Syriana. But anyway, Joaquin, walk the line. Walk the line. Sorry. Sorry. All things being considered, two of them are gone now. Would you give it to Hoffman for Capote or Ennis? We know where Heath Ledger's Oscar career is going. So, you know, just at knowing everything we know now, what would you do? Who are you voting for? I got two things to say. Go for it. One, I'm going to go with Heath. 
I, I would I would give the Oscar to Heath for this one. But I remember reading an Entertainment Weekly article. So take that for what you will. Back in the day. And Heath Ledger had said that uh, Philip Seymour Huffman's performance in Capote was one of his favorite performances he's ever seen. Yep. Because of the transformation and the immersion into that character. So you're watching Capote and you can't deny that. But uh, yeah, I give it to Heath. Nothing. And we're not we're not taking anything away from Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously. Hell no. But yeah, I, I make the same same choice for me too. One last thing. Um Lords of Dogtown, he finished shooting that movie with that character transformation. Five days later, he was on the set doing Brokeback Mountain. That's wild because that's knowing crazy. I I didn't know that. Knowing everything you have to put into Ennis because, okay, see, now we're just opening it right back the fuck up again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not talking out of turn here. This is very common knowledge. Heath Ledger did not have a good time filming Brokeback Mountain. It was, he called the experience excruciating. And this is a word actors often use when working with Ang Lee. And Ang Lee is very open about, quote, breaking actors down. That's what he does. He doesn't want, he wants whatever the hell he wants for you. And that's all. So if you give into it, Oliver Stone's the same way. You can kind of reach an artistic nirvana if you fight back against it and maybe won't work. But he's not the most giving or kind director. It's it's very like, do this, do this. So yeah, I just bring that all up by way of saying that it's, Knowing all of that was going on and now knowing he had barely any time to prepare it, like, man, what a, what a tremendous artist can do when put under tremendous pressure. Incredible. Yeah. That closes the book on Brokeback for now. Something tells me we're not done talking about it. But let's move on to a great surprise of Heath Ledger's career. And I really want to urge people to see this. That is Candy from 2006, directed by Neil Armfeld. It's fitting for someone as unique as Heath. That directly after delivering one of cinema's finest performances, his next work is in a small Australian film that not a lot of people had the chance to see at the time. But holy God, does this movie, this movie hits really hard. And I want you to jump off here because I know you had a kind of a profound time watching it. I couldn't believe what I was watching the whole time. I was disturbed, but not to the point of being pushed away uh i was pulled in and kept by this movie and um and and it, it was really the movie because i mean heath is amazing and it's so is abby cornish i mean it, it, she really both these two actors go in all in this gotta be one of my uh what a thing to say one of my favorite movies about addiction mm-hmm. because of the depths it is not afraid to go the love that these two have, the passion these two characters have, it's on fire and it's real. That that beautiful thing that only, you know, youth has is in them, even if it is infused with heroin. <laughs> right. And so so the whole entire time, starting from there and then going on the crashing low that the movie takes you on, I was floored by this movie. And when one thing I want to talk about Heath's performance in it. Um, which I've talked to you about that I loved and something he did in Monsters Ball, but has a way bigger um, opportunity to do it here is to play weak. Mm-hmm. This guy is such a loser, a classic junkie loser. You know, and we've seen so much from him at this point in his career. So to play a guy that just 
he's a waste of fucking space. He's also not a strong person for Abby Cornish in her character. So to watch someone that's just a complete loser, but yet you care. Mm-hmm. You care. That's that's the trick right there. And that's what he pulls off. So I, I, I really like this movie, <laughs> if you can't tell. I actually think it's a masterful addiction movie. And one of the reasons is because it goes so much darker than you would expect so quickly. But it never glorifies the tragedy. And that's a key thing that separates it from an American film dealing with the same subject where as American films really tend to focus on the tragedy and victimizing their subjects, there's something really horrible that happens pretty early in Candy and it's enough to occupy the whole story, but it doesn't. I mean, this is just one chapter in the life of a junkie. If a junkie goes through something awful, it isn't fade out and seeing the end. Like, Their life keeps going. It's all about how do I get that next score? And this is a really good movie and an important one to see in the whole like lexicon of his career. Probably of later Heath Ledger, I would say not a lot of people have seen and they they need to. Thankfully, it's an easy one to check out. It is, as of this recording, available on Amazon Prime, Peacock, Pluto, Tubi. It's, It's out there to see for free. So check it out, Candy. Check it out with, you know, with caution, it's it's heavy. It's heavy shit. It's heavy. It's yeah, yeah. It's not a feel good movie at all. The next year, he's in. This is a hard ass movie to describe. It's I'm not there. The first time I saw I'm not there, I was immediately drawn to Heath and the other actors who occupied a facet of Bob Dylan's personality in the film. Some of them were nominated for awards, rightfully so. Some of them were discussed a little bit more. All fair, but. Post Brokeback, if Heath Ledger was in a movie, I was pretty much only going to focus, not only, I was pretty much going to focus on him. My eyes, I was just so drawn to him, so excited to see what he was going to do next. And here he plays Robbie Clark, an actor who's playing a Dylan-esque character in a movie, and he falls in love with a French artist played by Charlotte Gainsbourg. And I really love their story so much. I love the writing of it. I love the way it's assembled. I love the way it is photographed in those deep blue hues and those yellows. That's Ed Lockman. Uh, and I love Ledger's angst and his arrogance. They're, they have that scene of him spouting off all that misogynistic stuff that I, I, I remember being so shocked by that and so jarred by it. But yet I was captivated by him and couldn't take my eyes off him. And then real quick, I listened to the director's commentary for this movie and when Todd Haynes was recording it, it was the first time he was watching the movie since Heath died. So I I was going to uh, take out some of the sound bites that he had from it, but it's it's good for a listen on your own if you're into director's commentaries because, you know, it's nostalgic for sure. But something I did learn from it is that Heath was planning on directing a feature film that's really was going to be the next phase of his career. And one of the first things on the docket was a movie about the musician Nick Drake, and he thought he could use his experience of filming I'm Not There and watching Todd Haynes make this movie about an artist to put into his own movie. So, you know, I would love to be able to see him to direct, but uh, another cool thing about him was that he was this incredible chess player and loved to play chess, and he was really, really trying to option The Queen's Gambit, that book, into a feature film. And, you know, of course, that got made into a Netflix miniseries last year. But 
again, the what if game can be a little, just a little sad, but what if? Yeah. Well, and then uh, there's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's going to come up sooner or later, but there is a full length documentary called I Am Heath Ledger. Yeah. That uh, I think is a perfect time to insert into this conversation about I'm Not There and these pursuits that Heath was after because that documentary shows how much of an artist he was. Mm-hmm. This was a guy that was just on the go, constantly involved, whether he was acting, he was a huge photographer. He really had a sense of imagery and art and music. The documentary does a really great job of showing all of that. And um, it's a very, very important part of his life that he lived. But uh, going back to I'm Not There, Bob Dylan, for me, is probably my biggest artistic source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. So I had just discovered Dylan when I saw I'm Not There. I was I was probably like immersed in Dylan already. So when I saw this, Heath Ledger's story in this is what captivated me the most. I really was attracted to his voiceover. Oh yeah. That voiceover that he uh you hear during his sequences, I connected with it when I was 22 and I'm connecting with it when I just rewatched it now. But that being said, um I wouldn't recommend this movie to someone who might be wanting to get into Bob Dylan. I would say if you're going to go with a film uh, way in, make this a later one. This is more, um, this wouldn't be the best indoctrination into Bob Dylan if you want to do it through film. But Keith in this movie, uh, this is one of my favorite performances from him. And I'm Not There is released in America in late November 2007. Heath gets great reviews for it, and then a few months later, on January 22nd, 2008, he dies. And it's something the world, at least as it relates to pop culture, has never really gotten over. And very shortly after he dies, Warner Brothers has the unenviable task of having to start marketing their big summer movie. And we arrive very quickly at a performance that needs no introduction. So why don't you take it away from here? Heath Ledger's performance as the Dark Knight, as the Joker, is my favorite acting performance of all time. I saw this movie when I had made my decision that I was going to be an actor and I had been living fully into that life. Then this movie comes out. The way I think about his performance is that he colored every single thing that he did. And now it's easy to kind of say you can do that with a performance like this because the Joker is basically free reign. Mm -hmm. There is no boundary. There is no rules. So you have a complete open canvas to do whatever the fuck you want with. And that's what he does. And so when I say he colors everything in, what I really mean to say is that there's not a word or choice that he made that wasn't specific and that wasn't lived in fully by all the other choices he made with his voice, with his body, um, with all of those creative inspirations. He talks a lot about Malcolm McDowell's performance as Alex in A Clockwork Orange being a big way in to finding this type of guy. He knew what he wanted to do when creating this character But um, I was doing a play 
right after I saw this, which was essentially a 20-page monologue. And I, what I kept telling myself was, I have to color everything. I have to know something about this, or I have to at least make a choice and decide that I'm going to do this with it. The play that I was able to creatively come up with as a result of that was all due to Heath. So now every time I get a part, I ask myself, how do I color this in? What colors do I need? If I did not have the Joker, I would not have had that way that I look at my acting now where I need to color all of this in. So thank you, Heath. Yeah. You know, in researching this, it was really nice to see Michael Caine and Gary Oldman really quick to point out the humor he brought to the performance, which is so true. He's so ridiculous and funny in all the best ways. Terry Gilliam said that contrary to popular opinion, Heath was having the time of his life while making this movie because it's exactly what you just said. There's no lines here. You can go outside. There's no boundaries. And he kept telling Gilliam that they can't touch me. I'm doing these interrogation scenes and they can't do anything because I'm this absolute fucking madman. This is a villain full of contradiction and charm right up there with Malcolm McDowell as Alex Large, as you mentioned. Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. Here's a cool question. I don't expect you to answer it now, but just it's a cool thing to kind of put in your head. Since this is your favorite performance of all time. Think about all the other performances that you would, you know, hold up to that bar and try to think of one in which the character does not have any scenes alone because Heath Ledger is never alone in this movie. Mm -hmm. That is a really, really fucking hard thing to pull off when we cannot see a character thinking or being in their normal setting. It's hard to make that a truly great performance because we know nothing about what makes him tick. If you want that, you go see the Todd Phillips movie, then you, you know, that's what they're going for. But in this version, we have no idea of like where he comes from. He's just this madman laced with contradiction. And I love, that's what I was thinking about watching it. Cause I know you hold this performance in such high regard. I'm trying to think of my favorite acting performances of all time and do, and they're almost always alone, at least for some portion. And I just think that's fascinating that he never is. And I think maybe answer that, or at least piggyback off of it, is because that character is so specific, is your imagination could think of what he does alone and you will be full. Like, if I was to, I'm thinking right now, I'm imagining just in any situation, like going to the bathroom. Like, what is going to the bathroom for the Joker as Heath Ledger? Like, but you could almost start to come up for yourself with what that would be humor and everything involved because he was so specific, which lets you get to be that specific as well. Similar to that bathroom comment. I've one of my favorite things to think about when watching this movie is the Joker quotes Jerry Maguire to Batman. So he has either seen Jerry Maguire by saying you complete me or He has like seen a clip of it, but it's he's making the connection of like he's saying it in the exact same context in the exact same way. So when the fuck did this guy (laughs) sit down and watch? I I just I love thinking about all that stuff. But yeah, it's so it's so in there and so defined. I mean, this one, people are going to be talking about this forever. Someone else has already won an Oscar for playing this role. And we're still going to be talking about Heath. The amount of love for this performance will never going will never go away. And speaking of Oscars, Heath Ledger did, of course, win 
a posthumous Oscar for supporting actor for this movie. I remember reading an interview with Michael Shannon at the time who was nominated for Revolutionary Road. And he was like, no one is voting for anyone but Heath. I'm voting for Heath. Like, no one is. And then again, this is the what if game. Would he have won if he was still alive? I To me, it's kind of a no-brainer. I guess maybe Robert yeah. Downey Jr. and Tropic Thunder would have given him a run. But <laughs> no, there's just, there's no like... What he was doing, it was so fucking bizarre to see this movie and to see audiences and critics both at the same time go, what is this? Like, we've seen these movies and maybe these movies are going to start to be a thing because Iron Man had come out, which is really what kicks off the huge surgeons of superhero movies. But no one had seen a performance that good in a movie like this before. I don't know if we ever will again. Of course, that's up for debate, but... What a thrill to watch this performance anytime. I rewatched it last night because I knew we were going to yeah. be recording this. So, yeah. So did I. It's on Netflix and HBO Max. It's easy to watch. And there's never a bad time to do it. When Heath passed away, he was in the middle of filming Terry Gilliam's next bonkers feature, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And in the absence of Heath, Gilliam does something that only really he can pull off. And that's that... He casts Johnny Depp, Jude Law, and Colin Farrell to each play Heath's character for one sequence in the film. And now because these sequences take place in a fantastical realm of reality, it makes sense when you see the movie, but it all kind of works organically. And they even make jokes like, oh, you look different now, but because – I watched this one yesterday, too. It's a hard film to watch because of what's missing. And, of course, any t- when you see those three other actors, you're like, ah, that should be Heath. And I have nothing but respect for Gilliam, Depp, Law, and Farrell, who are four men who have known and received their fair share of, um, I don't know, hatred or criticism in the press. But they – I. That's just a huge, huge thing to do. They didn't take any money for it. They donated the money to his daughter, Matilda, like – it, the movie even ends with a dead, that saying a film from Heath Ledger and friends. And I think that's really a testament to how much Gilliam loved Heath and the work they would have done together for years and years. But what what a hell of a final film and a kind of a what a weird way to go about it. Because, I mean, if, if that happens when he's making The Dark Knight, Warner Brothers is not going to let you do that. They're not going to let you put like three different actors in it or something. But it's Terry Gilliam and he goes – I mean, this is a dear friend of mine. Like, how do I do this and pay respect to him? I mean, to its credit, the Fast and the Furious franchise did this really well with Paul Walker, too. Like, they really did. Mm -hmm. And then this is just another version of that. And that's it. That's the end of a career that is, by any account, far too short. Well, absolutely. And and I loved how they did that with this movie, too. I, I thought it worked really, really well. You know, like, again, like the charm that he has the magnetism everything that he's doing in his scenes in this movie you know he's kind of playing this cunning mischievous weasel kind of guy like he's kind of got his own end game he's trying to manipulate the situation for himself while using all the tools that he has he knows he can be charming he know he he can be a salesman in that way he can be all of that it's a cool way to see it because it's just a little dirty. It's just a little. It is. And yeah. it's fun to watch him sleaze like that. He does a little of that in Casanova in, in some ways, but in a completely different way. But it's just all really an amalgamation of 
all of the talents that he can bring to everything he does. And again, why he like steals the scenes. I really, really miss this guy. And we, he had a type of inherent talent that we just do not see. And in addition to that, he had the smarts to know that he wanted to do something different. He did not want to be a conventional leading man. And again, uh, we could genuinely do a part two of this podcast just playing the what if game and about the roles that were offered to him that he had to turn down because he was busy or that he wasn't able to do because he passed away. There's a whole rabbit hole you can go down for that stuff. But yeah, we leave you with the work. And in summing up the work, we're going to really quick do our top five Heath performances. Um, I usually make you go first, so I don't mind going first if you want. I'll go first. Go for it. All right. So five. Um, I, I got to. Ten things I hate about you. Nice. For a number of reasons. Is that one, it's the role that put him on the map. Mm-hmm. It's the role that started everything. It's where the world got to see him. It's just that magnetic and charismatic of a performance. Four, coming in strong with Candy. His performance is just so pathetic <laughs> that I love it. <laughs> Three, Lords of Dogtown. I just feel like I knew him. There's something in that transformation that he did that just hit a chord with me that um is a rare thing to do two broke back mountain mm-hmm. i think uh we may have exhausted everything about that i love watching him search when something good was asked of him he finds a way to say no um and one how could it not the order dark knight oh, the joker sorry. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i I mean well played well of course of course so we have three in common which is cool they're not all the same so number five for me is i'm not there oh nice yeah because i i was really drawn to it more on this rewatch than ever before our four is shared that's candy because man number three this was my number one for a long time and that's monsters ball i said for oh wow a long time that um This was the one because, as I mentioned, it put him on the map for me in such a profound way. That was the one that really still resonates for me. Number two, Joker. Number one, Ennis Del Mar. I I just love that movie. I love this guy. I love this man. And all the research I did, all of it, I could not find a single negative thing said about him. And I was researching stuff, as were you, before he died. Like, there's just, there's no drama. He was so giving. He worked with huge stars that he revered or people who were in a movie for the first time for all these big names we're throwing out gary oldman michael kane you can go read like andrew garfield working for him and dr parnassus and talking about like or emily browning working with him in ned kelly so just always giving no matter who he was working with and heath we love you that brings us to the end what are you watching you want me to go first you want to take it I'm going to go with the movie that I actually like low key referenced earlier in the podcast, uh, Don Juan DeMarco. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because it it really, um, number one, I fucking love that movie. <laughs> it's, I haven't seen it in so long, but I remember loving it. Yeah. Dude, it is a movie that on all accounts should not work at all. And yet it does. It is it is whimsical. It is um, it's romantic. It's. It's ridiculous, 
And Johnny Depp and Marlon Brando is probably actually my favorite later Marlon Brando performance. It actually seems like one where it's where he cares. <laughs> he did care for that one, actually. He did because of Johnny. He cared yep. because it's I, I don't want to interrupt, but the same way Heath is working with a hero in Mel on yeah. the Patriot. I mean, Johnny idolized Marlon Brando. What actor doesn't? So that was a huge thing for him to be able to work with him yep and their scenes are are great together and because johnny you know also in his help with uh dr paranassus you know kind of bringing it back to that um which is on it probably one of my favorite johnny depp per- later performances to be honest upon, upon rewatch he's really good in it it's really good yeah really good the the weight of what is happening it plays on all of them they're they're restrained but goofy it's a very good late depth performance. He's only in one scene. They're only in yeah. one scene, but I really loved him in Parnassus. Yeah. That that charm, that that charm that they both have, uh, Heath and Johnny Depp, I think is comparable. And so, yeah, Don Juan DeMarco, check it out. Fun movie. Great stuff. When we talk about an actor, I usually try to recommend something. I try to do some digging in what they liked, but because Heath was so press adverse, he really didn't do a lot of interviews. Like I couldn't find... You know, this is before the podcast era, so there wasn't a lot of stuff out there. But I did find a cool quote. Fellini, Cassavetes, Bob Fosse, Stanley Kubrick. I would have loved to work with them. I would love to work with many people who are around, but they're not lining up just yet. Terrence Malick is the one person who comes to mind. I would love to be in one of his visual poems. So pulling from that, just trying to think of like what Heath would connect to. I went with a movie that was released the year he was born in 1979. That's All That Jazz by Bob Fosse because this is is an autobiographical film that contains one of the best performances from one of the best all-time great character actors, Roy Scheider. And it's the movie is insane. It has this manic energy that few films have. And I remember the first time I watched this, I was making my way through Fosse's work, like Sweet Charity, okay, Cabaret, Lenny, fine. And then you put on all that jazz and within the first five minutes, you're like, is the whole movie going to be like this? Like the whole thing going to be this fucking crazy? And it is. It's just madness. And I can picture Heath like watching it and loving it and getting up and dancing with it and just being kind of goofy and crazy. And maybe that's why he was drawn to someone like Terry Gilliam, who had a very open, who has a very open free spirit that comes through in his movies and we're just Bob Fosse, Terry Gilliam, Heath Ledger. We're talking about all these kind of unique creatures who were uncaged on movie sets. And I, it's just bliss. I don't like every Bob Fosse movie. I don't like every Terry Gilliam movie. I don't like every Heath Ledger movie. Yeah. But I like what they all represent as artists. And in case you wanted to know, Heath's favorite movie was Wizard of Oz. I was just, that was my next note. Look at that. I wrote <laughs> it right fucking there. That's hilarious. No, that's awesome. I was going to close by saying he was really enchanted by that movie. And I think the last actor we did, Amy Adams, that was in her top five at least. So yeah, Wizard of Oz, Heath's favorite. That was fun though. That was a good suggestion. It was a good trip down memory lane talking about 10 years talking about basically 1999 to 2009 what a career go watch some a lot of them are out there to watch for free so as always thanks everyone for listening and happy watching hey everyone thanks again for listening you can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com nicholasdostal.com is where you can find all of nick's film work And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. 
Next time is going to be real, real special. Nick and I will be sharing our thoughts on the 93rd Academy Awards immediately after watching them, and we will be doing so in person. Come hell or high water, we will record that episode in Los Angeles directly after the show airs. Stay tuned.